Hello, and welcome to Sundays at Coastal. This week, Pastor Andy continues our sermon series in the book of James with a sermon titled, Mercy Triumphs. In a world of self-imposed judgments, Jesus offers us a remarkable gift. He not only declares us guilty, but takes on our sentence, embodying boundless mercy. Accepting his mercy is our liberation. Furthermore, Jesus pours out his abundant grace, bestowing upon us his spirit filled with hope, peace, and joy. He shares his power, influence, and purpose, inviting us to partake in his victory. Embrace his mercy with all your heart and hold on to his grace tightly. Through them, you'll rise above challenges, conquer obstacles, and embark on an extraordinary journey of faith, love, and triumph. Let his mercy and grace ignite your soul, transforming your life. Hi, friends. Uh, we have a, a, an amazing church. I love what God is doing here. We had an incredible uh, prayer retreat this weekend where uh, we have this side of the room is glowing because of all of the prayer that's been done this weekend. Absolutely fantastic. Also, um, if you've ever been to a fellowship event at our church, um, sometimes we'll have custom wood-fired gorgeous pizzas that are by Craig Smithback, who's in the front row. And you know what? Part of being a smaller church is, is that uh, sometimes wives text pastors and say, it's my husband's birthday today. Uh, so we're going to sing happy birthday, Craig. Are you ready? Okay. Uh, the lyrics go like this. This is your birthday song. It isn't very long. Hey, are you ready? This is your birthday song. It isn't very long. Hey. Thirty-nine. His wife said eighty-nine. Okay. Well, if uh, you are new or visiting with us, with us this morning, welcome. If you're watching online for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Um, every single week, what we do is remind ourselves uh, what we believe. This is taken from Isaiah 61, and we believe as a church that uh, churches are much better when Jesus is the only celebrity. Uh, rather than any one pastor or personality, and also that our mission and our what we do, how we spend our money, what we do as a church is driven and governed by, uh, by, the, by our vision as a church. And so this is what we believe and hold dear. Number one, there is always, always hope beyond your brokenness. And uh, we do prayer retreats for that in every single sermon. You're going to have a moment of exchanging uh, the bad out and praying in the good. We do that during worship. We, your kids are doing that and your grandkids are doing that in Sunday school right now. We do that in every Bible study. We do that across the street in Table Talk. Every single moment we have, we don't want just to learn principles about God. We actually want to put those truths in action in prayer all the time. Amen? Because love does. And so that's what we believe as a church. Second, we call the trust in our risen Savior. And Jesus is alive. Oh, and he knows what he's doing. He's got a plan for you, a purpose for you, a hope for you. He has, he has things that you, he wants to bless you with, places in your heart that he wants to redeem and renew and restore. And so he's big enough and he's good enough and he's powerful enough to put the full weight of your soul and your life and your walking around in his more than capable hands. He adores you. And if you feel disqualified of that love the moment that you walk in this door, welcome. 
Because none of us are up to earning it. None of us have determined that we are worthy of God's love because we are good enough. That's not how God works. God says, I love you because I love you because I love you because I love you because I love you. Amen? Amen. That just is the Aramaic word for I agree. That's all amen means. Finally, we get to bring restoration. So Susie, where are you? Susie, are you ready to come back next week to tell the story? Okay, so can we pray for Susie real quick? Jesus, we pray that as Susie gives away change for a dollar, that every single moment of that interaction would be soaked in your presence, and the person that she gives it to would feel like they are God's beloved child, part of this family, chosen and loved by you, Jesus. Amen. That's what we do as a church. We bring restoration. We were talking yesterday at the prayer retreat about how... um, uh, multiple cars have been given away to people in our church in the past couple of months. Uh, when people in our church um, need something, that need is met. When people in the community come and they say, uh, we, you, we've had so much furniture, it's literally coming out of our ears across the street in the church offices underneath the big white tent behind the, uh, our church offices. Half of it is literally stacked 10 feet tall with furniture. So when people graduate from recovery homes in the area, guess what we're doing? We're, we're, we're giving them furniture. When, when you show up next Saturday and you look at this amazing, world-class, beautiful furniture for a screaming deal, right? you will not find a better deal next week. You're going to look at it and you're going to go, dang, and, and you're going to walk away and it's going to be incredible. And, we're, and you're going to look at it and you're going to go, I don't know, should I get this? And the answer is yes. Why? Because it's not like we're keeping that money and going, ha, 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 we made a profit. No, we're taking all of that money, and then we're giving it away to bring restoration to the community. How much fun is that? So when you sit down and you have your Mai Tai and you're soaking up the sun, you're going, I made a difference in in my life. (laughs) Like, come on now. Like, what else do you want? Oh, and we'll deliver it to you if you need it. I mean, this is door-to-door service here, people. So every single thing that we believe, we believe because we choose it. God chooses us, and we choose God every day. And so we say this together as a church, but we're not, it's not just a mantra. It's not just something that you're forced into because of peer pressure. I'm inviting you to make a choice. And that choice sounds like this. Today, and if you want to choose to to be changed by Jesus and to seek him and to join him in his resurrection work, then declare your choice with me out loud right now and put some pepper on it, okay? Today, I choose to be changed by Jesus. I choose to seek Jesus first, and I choose to join Jesus in his resurrection work. Amen? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness for your love for us, for your delight in us. God, you knew all the places where we'd fall flat on our face, and still you chose us, still you've given us a purpose, still you've given us a calling in our life, and it's, you know exactly where we're going to mess up. You know exactly where we're going to wildly succeed. You know exactly where we're going to need help and learn and grow. And so what else could we do but to choose you? We say yes to you today. We open our hearts to you. 
we, we speak to our own souls right now and we say, awaken, O oh my soul, and all that it is within me. And again, we just bind up and silence the enemy that would seek to distract or bother us or put us to sleep. You know, we'll stay away from Netflix, but, but sometimes we fall asleep for you, Jesus, but not today, devil. So leave in the name of Jesus, everything opposed to Christ. Get off. Go away in Jesus' name. Go to Jesus to be judged. And this is your space and your time, and so we declare, Holy Spirit, that only you can prosper here. And all God's beloved saints said, amen. amen. I did not smash both of my thumbs. I was hanging out with two 10-year-old twin girls, and they said, Andy, can we paint your tongue? They call me, Sh- they call me Shuby Doer. They said, Shuby Doer, can we, paint, can we paint your nails? And I said, only if you make it look like I smashed my thumbs. And I think they did a good job, didn't they? They did. Girl, it's fantastic. So today might be one of the most important preach- sermons I preach. It's about how we understand God, it's about how we live, it's about how we treat ourselves, it's about how we treat each other. And the way that James goes about communicating this message in his letter to churches is absolutely brilliant, like beautifully brilliant, like a parable that his brother, stepbrother Jesus would would, would speak. The depth of today's passage is shocking, its implications are life-changing, the challenges that it brings to you is real. This is not for the person sitting next to you. This is for you. But most of all, there's just so much love and hope in today's passage. So will you come on me? Will you come with me on this ride? That'd be okay? Because it is a ride, y'all. And there's a moment where you're like, I'd like to get off, please, and I'm asking you to stay on. Can we do that? Okay. So what's the context in the book of James? Today's passage is chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Where have we been in chapter 1? James tells us, hold on to Jesus through the trials. And as you persevere, that means to abide and keep on abiding, and you ask for wisdom because ain't nobody knows what to do when the storm comes, nor are you expected to know. That's why you're invited to ask for wisdom, and God will give it to you. As you persevere and hold on to Jesus, the goal is is to ask Jesus into the places of temptation. Temptation is just you trying to do life on your own. God doesn't condemn you or shame you because you fail to do life on your own. He asks, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Invite Jesus into the emptiness, and you will make it through the temptation because He will fill you with his very presence. Jesus holds on to you through the storms. He gives you wisdom. He fills those empty places with his goodness and kindness and love. And he's always listening to you. He never operates towards you with anger, ever, but with unending love and mercy and gentleness. And now James finishes this section with a remarkable story so let's, lead, uh, let's read in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1 together. Are you ready? It goes like this. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring. Okay, 
this is so fantastic. First of all, the picture that James paints in Greek is really, really fun. Um, he starts by calling Jesus what? Believers in our glorious Lord. Glorious literally means shining. It means brightness. It means splendor. It's oh, it's shining. Make sense? So Jesus is the one who's shining. And then the very next sentence is, suppose a man comes into your church and he comes wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. The Greek in this, though, is really fun. The man's clothes aren't just fun. In Greek, the word is lampros, where we get the word lamp from. They're so white, they are shining. And the gold ring isn't singular. The Greek literally means adorned with gold rings. In the Roman Empire at this time, you could rent gold rings as a dude and put one on every single knuckle. Your fingers could be adorned, <laughs> blinged. So here's Jesus, the Lord of light, and here's a rich dude who emits light from his clothes and dazzling jewelry. And who's the third character? A poor man in what kind of clothes? Filthy old. Now, it's not just filthy and old. It's not like he got a Carhartt's on with the rip in it and they're like muddy, right? That'd be sweet, okay? <laughs> I love my Dickies. I love my Carhartt's, okay? It's that the clothes themselves reveal a moral filth. Does that make sense? So here's a rich man, light, and here's a poor man, filthy, but, but like like grimy, like dirty, like skeezy, like, like icky, like gross, like ugh. Make sense? Picking up what James is putting down? It's brilliant. Two sentences, all of a sudden, you get a picture. What does James say? Verse 3. Here we go. Ready? Read this with me. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, oh, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. This is the best church. I've never been to a church to be like, no, no, you're right here, man. <laughs> Just sit down at my feet. It's so fantastic. I love that. Verse 4, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James, my man, bro, what? Are you kidding? Like, I get what James is saying, but we don't have a kind of a culture here at church where... Like, you got to sh show up clearly, right? I mean, you can wear a tiki room, short sleeve shirt. You know, I was like, do I wear sweatpants today? I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe one day. So, I mean, in California, in 50 years, we, you rarely will walk into a church with this kind of atmosphere. But today on the East Coast, there are people sitting in church right now where every pew is literally paid for. And you sit in the pew that you've paid for. And that is a monthly subscription cost, okay? And you have your name in a gold engraved plate in front of that pew. And the more you pay, the closer you sit to the preacher. Here in this church, nobody ain't nobody wants to sit in the front rows, right? It's the only seat, right? I don't know what is, why is that West Coast, but on East Coast, the closer that you get, 
the more honor that you have. In Jewish synagogues to this day, you are required to tithe. You submit your financial uh, paperwork to the synagogue, and then you tithe 10%. But if you tithe more than 10%, then you get a seat closer to the rabbi, and the highest givers have the honor of reading or singing scripture. Now, I have no idea how much money you give. None. Um, and I love that. I'm never going to, please give, because we need, like, I like eating, and more importantly, we're doing amazing things here. But it's fascinating, uh, the culture of some churches. Now, um, have you ever heard of the Methodist church? That was a guy started, that was started by a guy named Charles Wesley in the 1740s. In the 1740s, nobody who was poor went to church. Why? Because they couldn't afford clean clothes. Charles Wesley would go to the coal mines in the west of England, uh, and he would, uh, he would preach to men. And when people saw Charles Wesley preaching to 5,000 coal miners on a Sunday morning, all these men are covered in black faces, but there's white streaks down their face because they're crying and hearing the gospel for the first time. That's how the Methodist church started. A hundred years later, William Booth, have you ever heard, anybody heard of the Salvation Army? A hundred years later, the Methodist church was so uppity that when, William, when poor people came in, the Methodists would put all of the poor people in a particular section and then put a screen across that section so that they could be heard but not seen. Because they weren't dressed nice. And so William Booth, when he came into the, he brought all of the poor people who could find, and they marched triumphantly. And where did they sit in the Methodist church? In the front rows. And it shocked the pastors. <gasps> and they literally invited willful William Booth to leave. And so thus the Salvation Army was born. God does not prioritize you on how much money you have or don't have on how much money you give or don't give. Amen? There's a literal revival happening right here in this church right now. So support it. But I don't prioritize connecting to you based on how much money you give. And so James says spot on. He says, God doesn't play favorites. You and I don't play favorites. We have no idea what people's story is. I know some of you are really struggling financially, and it's not because you've done something wrong. It's because someone else has made a choice out there that has wrecked you, and you're still in the recovery process. Your credit score is not the measure of your soul or your worth. Don't play favorites with people. God isn't a bank that punishes you when you don't have money. I love when banks do that. Oh, you're broke? Great. Let's charge you an overdraft fee. Yeah. Now, how do you have less than no money? Like, that don't make sense. Like, what motivation is there for me to put money into the bank when they just go, now we're going to charge you for the favor of keeping it here? I don't get it. That's not how God interacts with you when you're dead broke. When you're dead broke or you're in massive debt because of your sin, God doesn't punish you and say, well, you're even deeper now because I found out and you got to make up for it. What God does is he pays all of your debt and then he deposits into your heart all of his inheritance and riches because he loves you. 
right? I would want to put my money in that bank if that bank existed. Amen? This story, however, has even deeper layers of profound truth. I mean, the first obvious reading of it is don't play favorites. When you see somebody, welcome them no matter what their story is. You have no idea why somebody shows up with grease on their hands and their fingers and dirt on their clothes. I know so many people who literally have shown up to church absolutely filthy, and I said, what happened? And they say, I was driving down the street, and all of a sudden, some person needed help, and I'm under their car, and I'm fixing it, and then I show. It happens all the time. It's crazy. Spiritual strength and eternal significance isn't found in how much money you make on earth. Spiritual strength and eternal significance is often found when you have the least. Read this with me. We don't live on this brief time on earth. We live for eternity. Imagine a rope I was holding starts here and stretches on for all eternity. Our life is like this big. It's like five inches. And so much of us are like, oh, I wish I'm going to save and I'm going to save and I'm going to save and I'm going to save so that right here I can have a lot of fun. That's fine. But then when the call to be generous or the call to be kind or the call to be sacrificial comes, we go, no, 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 no. I can't do that because this little part right here, that's what I'm saving. And we forget that that rope, that life goes on for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. If you're going to make any investment here on earth, make it into eternity. Because what you do here with your money and your time and your priority makes a difference for all eternity. Talk about a pretty phenomenal investment strategy. I have faith here. I pray here. I love here. I sacrifice here. And God rewards me in heaven. My treasure is in heaven. Now, it don't matter if you're flat broke and you never give away a dime. If you say yes to Jesus, you're going to be in heaven. It's going to be lit. Right? But there is, there is something amazing when you stand before Jesus and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's how I want to live. That's how I want to live. I want to live showing up to heaven and looking at all of you and all of us are just going to cry and weep because what we did is that we gave and we poured out our lives for the sake of people who are not yet sitting in these seats and we will rejoice because we will see generation after generation after generation of people who come to know Jesus and are with us in heaven for all eternity, and we'll look at each other in banquet tables and we go, we did it. We did it. Amen? The greatest strength you have is accepting your weakness and poverty before God. Wealth and comfort, this, all that is is the ability to make yourself numb more easy. And you don't have to be poor in order to accept your need for God. Thus, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom. When you're poor in spirit, you've, accept, you've had the courage to accept your desperate need for God, and your hands are finally open to receive his immense riches. But if you're holding on 
to your wealth or your comfort, and you're saying, you know what? I know there's heaven, but there's Netflix now. You know, I know that there's need and in, in, in all this stuff I could do, but, but there's this package of Oreos and this new NCIS thing, and like, I don't want to convenience myself because it's so easy to hold on to what we have, our schedules, our comfort, our routines, and, we, and God says, I have a bounty of, of, of eternal significance and purpose and inheritance for you. And we're like, yeah, but I go to bed at nine. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> Open your hands. Open your hands to give and to receive. He has more for you. And then James points us to a really important and deeper layer of truth than favoritism, or in, not than, within the concept of favoritism. We will mistreat those who we think are poor or dirty or sinful, and we will even mistreat our own hearts, the parts of us that we think are poor or dirty or sinful, because we don't understand the gospel And we insist on living in a relationship with God and with each other through a worldview of rules and judgment and law. And James explains it like this, verse 6. But you, read this with me. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Yeah, man. (laughs) Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? When we dishonor the poor, we think their dirt will infect us. When it's the rich who are causing us the most harm with their greed and their idolatry of money. Now you might say, well, Andy, I don't mistreat people who are poor, and not everyone who has money is a scoundrel, so this doesn't really apply to me. Clearly, it's for the person sitting next to me. You're the problem. (laughs) But let me open the hood on the mindset that drives this kind of behavior and see if it sounds familiar to you. In the physical world, we encounter an equation that works most of the time. In the physical world, we encounter an equation that works most of the time. And the equation goes like this. Do the right thing. You will be blessed and you'll get rich. Do the wrong thing, you will be cursed, therefore you will be poor. If you do the right thing with relationships, you're blessed with strong families, and then you're rich in your relationships. That's true. If you do the wrong thing in your relationships, you're codependent, you're angry, you're resentful, you're hurtful, then you will be, you'll bring cursing to your family And then you will experience the poverty in your relationships that you don't want. That's true. Amen? Okay? If we make poor choices with our money, if we make poor choices with our body, if we abuse ourselves or others in our relationship, it all leads to cursing and therefore disaster and therefore poverty. The same is true when we do the right thing. As we continue to do the right thing, we build. We build beautiful things in our lives, and there's a richness to our lives that we, that we, just, we get to enjoy. And it's, not, it's money and, but it's more than, way more than just money. 
Does that make sense? The problem with this equation is twofold. First, it's not always true all the time. Sometimes I'm blessed with riches that I did nothing to earn. Okay? And sometimes I'm crushed with the poverty that I do not deserve. Secondly, while this equation largely works moving from left to right, it does not work moving from right to left. Does that make sense? So when we see someone who looks dirty or soiled or unclean or poor or messed up, we assume that they got themselves in that state by their poor decisions. And sometimes we see someone who's rich or they feel like they're rich or they appear rich and we think, wow, they've done, they must have done all the right things. God must be blessing them. But this is faulty thinking and you know why, right? I mean, I don't have to give you many examples. You already know that most of the most messed up people in the world, the most evil people in the world are fabulously wealthy. Just because they're rich don't mean they're good. And you know some of the poorest people in the world are actually the spiritually the most significant on planet Earth for Jesus and his kingdom. Amen? Even still, we hold on to this equation and read it both ways about ourselves and others all the time. We'll even attribute it to God himself. This is what's crazy. We think that if something bad happens in our life, it must be because we did something wrong and now God is angry and punishing us. We think God withholds love and mercy until the punishment of our crime crushes us enough to satisfy God's anger. God's like, are you sorry yet? Squeal a little louder. That's how we think of God when we think that way. Why do we do that? Well, that's what our parents did to us. Sorry. You got to be very careful in parenting to give your children consequences, but not to withhold love. It's easy to mess that up. And you're going to mess it up. That don't mean you don't stop trying. Give your children consequences. Do not withdraw your love. We do that with our spouses all the time. Whatever. I'm not moving. You move towards me first. No, you apologize first. No, you love me first. No, you do this first. Right? I'm great at forgiving and wonderful at holding on to my anger. Oh, I forgive you. <laughs> That's not how God interacts with me, but that's what we do. We work the equation of our habit, even though we confess with our lips and sing with our souls each week that God loves us and forgives us and does not treat us according to this equation. And still we find ourselves acting out this equation all the time, which is that I'll love you if you do the right thing for me. And I'll bless you if you do the right thing for me. And if you don't do the right thing, I will withhold that and curse you. I told you to hang on. It's a wild ride. And here's my confession to you. I often favor those who make life easier for me. And that's what James is getting at. 
I struggle to bless those people who struggle in my life. But if you make my life easy for me, I'll love you more. And that's favoritism. Now, James then shows us how this thinking then all falls apart. Verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, read this with me, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. James says it straightforward. If you want to live by this equation you have in your head, which what we call religiosity, then guess what? You'll be convicted by that equation too. For all my disdain for those who hurt me, for all my favoritism for those who can and do bless me, when God shows me my disdain and my favoritism, that's the very evidence that convicts me that I'm breaking the rules I want everyone else to follow. Why? Because when I mess up, I still want you to like me and bless me. But I don't want to do that for you. I desperately need your mercy, but I'm unwilling to give it. I'll be convicted by that. Then James nails us with the truth so that we can't wriggle out of it. This is awful and wonderful. At the same time, welcome to church. Verse 10, read this with me. Ready? Read it loud. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point. Say with me, oh, snap. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, congratulations, but you happen to kill somebody, you become a lawbreaker. The Apostle Paul, he writes in the book of Galatians that he never actually broke the law, not once. I mean, the Ten Commandments plus the 620 additional rules that the Pharisees put on it, right? We all grew up in churches that additional rules, right? You had to wear the what would Jesus do bracelet. When you dance, you have to keep the Holy Spirit in between the person you're dancing with. You can't listen to good music. You only have to listen to Sandy Panties or whatever, Sandy Patty, whatever her name is, Michael W. Smith, whatever, right? Whatever it is, right? You have to eat this certain way, and you can't say these certain words because all God hates all of them, right? That's all of the 622 Jewish laws, right? We do the same thing, right? Where's your Christian t-shirt ministry? Oh, you're, oh, okay, right? And Paul says, I kept all of them. But when Jesus met Paul and blinded him with the truth, Paul was devastated. Why? Because Paul literally said, I'm so zealous at protecting God that I'm going to destroy and murder people who blaspheme him. And Paul was like, oh, I kept all the laws and then I killed people because they were breaking the laws. I'm a lawbreaker. The closer you grow to Jesus, the more you'll see your absolute need for him. The more time that you spend your Jesus, with Jesus, the more that you'll see your poverty and you'll go, God, I need you, thank you. The closer that you grow to Jesus, the more majestic and beautiful his mercy is, and you'll, just, you'll cry every time you sing of it. Why? Because his love for you becomes clearer and your worth becomes more because you realize that he sacrificed all the riches of heaven to save you. 
Your sin will start to smell more. His glory will start to shine more. And all the bling of this world will become more and more dull. Your humility will increase, and then he will literally become the most lovely and the most beautiful, the most glorious, shining prize in your life. So what do we do? Well, you get to make a choice. If you want to live by the law, sitting in judgment over others, favoring the obedient and scorning the rebels, you will surely be crushed by the very rules you make. And you'll try and comfort yourself with pride and reassurance during the day, but at 3 a.m. you'll be woken up every morning with horrible anxiety. Why? Because you'll never be able to keep it up. You'll never be able to be perfect all the time. You'll always fail, and then you'll hide it and pretend that no one sees it, and everyone can smell it. I smell you. Prayer will look like obligation. You'll never feel truly loved. Worship won't make sense. You'll go, why'd they sing that song? Oh, the one about mercy and grace? Oh, yeah. And what's not moving you, be careful. Every day and every week will end with a frantic search for rest that when you wake up, it will never, you'll never feel rested. But if you're ready to see that that way of living, that favoritism, which is the equation of religiosity in your life, if you're, way, if you're ready to see that that's the way of death, you will feel weak because of your need for God and strong because of his presence with you. A drowning swimmer looks weak, but if I go save you and you weigh 85 pounds and you're drowning, you can drown me. Why? Because even if you're 85 pounds to my 200 and it's a secret, um, <laughs> even you're 85 pounds, you will be stronger than me. Why? Because you're desperate to live and you know that you're going to die. And in that is the greatest strength you will ever find of your life. Your strength is connected to your poverty. If you're ready to be poor in spirit, then you can make the choice to choose Jesus because he's the way and the truth and the life. And choosing Jesus means accepting his presence and his way, and his life. So when Jesus sits in judgment over you, he declares you're guilty according to your own law, and then, because he loves you, he pays your fine. He's condemned for the sentence spoken against you, and he gives you all that he has earned as your substitute. That's mercy. That's love. Do you want it? Are you sure? Or do you want only that which you can earn? You sure? You sure? It's a hard no. Craig says it on his birthday. Birthday boy wants mercy and grace. Do you want it? Well, then let's pray.
Jesus, I lay down my earning. I lay down my rules. I lay down my favoritism. I lay down my religiosity. And I gratefully receive you in your mercy and your grace. Amen. Okay. Now what? Now this. Now you have mercy and grace to give away. So here's what's going to happen this week. You're going to encounter somebody who needs mercy. That's not getting what they do deserve. They do deserve scorn. They do deserve disdain. They do deserve you punishing them. And are you going to give them what they don't deserve, which is love instead? You can still speak the truth to them, but not withdraw your love. Are you willing to give it? Really? There's going to be a twit in your life whose free will decision is going to mess you up in some way this week. What are you going to do to them? You can still speak the truth. You can still have good boundaries. But are you going to love them? So then you're going to have to say, Lord Jesus. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Verse 13, read this with me. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Because this week is the person that you give mercy to. You're going to feel like, man, they don't deserve it. And in the same breath, you're going to be blown away because you don't deserve it either. You're going to be captivated in that moment by his very presence. You're going to feel his angels around you. It's because you're going to be giving away what you've been given. And that In that moment, they will see the love of God. And when we are in heaven, we will look at every single one of those moments and we'll go, those are the moments that brought me here. And you will never regret that generosity. Lord Jesus, bless and seal this good word in our hearts. I'm sorry, Jesus, that I've made you and and to this person that was so angry with me. I would interact with you ever as though you only loved me when I did what was perfect and good. I missed you, God. You are the God who forgives me and loves me when I'm at my worst. You are the God who chooses me and adores me right this very moment in every good and beautiful and broken place. God, give me mercy this week. God, give me grace this week. That I can rest finally. And that's why I can give it away. Bless this 
good work, Holy Spirit, in the hearts of my friends. I praise you for them. I'm so grateful for them. Honor them today, Jesus. We honor you. And all God's people said it. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. Now may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Now may the Lord of glory give you peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. we got amazing food for you. Go enjoy it. Blessings on your day. If you want prayer, you can come forward for prayer. Pastor Andy Rock is the senior pastor of Coastal Community Church. It's located in Grover Beach, California, and serves communities across the Central Coast. Join us online each week on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. for our weekly live stream. We also have two in-person services at 9 a.m. and 10.40 a.m. in our sanctuary. Coastal Community Church is located at 1830 Farrell Road, Grover Beach, California. For more information, visit our website, www.mycoastal.org. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you have a great week.